Facebook's have quite the wiki, but I'm not going to read all this shit. I was just curious to see. But yeah, it does look like it was Suicide Squad. Which, oh, she was also in Shadow Pact. I did read that, so... All right, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, I think I'm good. I'm I'm armed with enough information not to sound like a complete moron when we get to the And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and I am joined by my very good pal David A. Pascarella. How's it going, Scott? It's going good. Going good. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Becoming Always a, a pleasure. You're becoming something of a of a semi regular on the show. <laughs> I'm doing my best to inch my way in. There you go. There you go. Well, for those that may be wondering, um, Paul is uh, he's out of the country, isn't he? He's traveling right now. I, I know he's on vacation. I'm trying to remember where he said he was where he was going for his vacation. I want to say Mexico. I'm not sure I believe that. that I think he was, but I thought they asked him to leave. that just reminds me i had a whole joke prepared on that thing and i just totally forgot about it until this very moment but oh well too late now um and then the good doctor was uh, supposed to join us for this episode but he's having both work and home internet issues so we may or may not hear from him um by episode's end but uh we decided to go ahead and forge forward for this one for time reasons and that sort of thing. So uh, we do have uh, a, a book apiece, a story apiece for this episode. Before we get into this, uh, I'm going to apologize to the audience ahead of time. I was telling Dave just before we got uh, started with the recording here that uh, my energy is uh, at extreme low ebb <laughs> at the moment. So uh, peek behind the curtain. At work, I am a, a trainer, and one of the things that I'm responsible for is training our folks on proper installation of child safety seats and then also on uh, you know the proper etiquette and loading and such of uh, guests with disabilities, you know traveling in a wheelchair or on one of those electronic scooting you know scooter devices uh, into an accessible vehicle that we have. Uh, you know, via like one of those liftgate things. Mm-hmm. Um, right now in Florida, we have had a string of days in a row where uh, the temperature has exceeded 100 degrees, and then the feels like is even hotter than that. So for the past two days, you know, including today and yesterday, um, I have you know had a, a full day of training basically out in the in the weather, you know, out in the sun, you know, for the bulk of each of the days. 
and uh, my ass is whipped. I mean, the sun has just beat me down, and so <laughs> I'm exhausted. So I'm going to do my best to rally. I am excited for the books and everything that we cover tonight, but if I just don't have my, my usual high energy for this, please forgive me. I'm uh, I'm running on fumes at the moment, but, uh, but I am excited for what we are bringing to the show. And uh, Dave, as the guest here, uh, I'm going to give you the choice. What would you like to run with first? Uh, why don't you go first? You want me to go first? You go okay. first. <laughs> and me go it's first. your world. Right. I'm, I'm just living in it. Oh, not at all. Not at all. So <laughs> for mine, I actually went kind of the lazy route on this, and I'll explain. So um, Dave's book, I'm not going to reveal what it is yet, but Dave's book, Dave picked a good one in my opinion. He picked a, a Charlton book that I've long had in my collection. I don't think I've ever read. Um. So I got to thinking, you know, I, I kind of like this this Charlton vibe. Let's let's go with another Charlton. I mean, I have a little mini Charlton theme going on here. So I selected a Charlton. And the first book that came to my mind was I have been collecting, and I think I now have a, a complete collection of E-Man, which was a, a Charlton title that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was created or co-created by Joe Staten. The reason I've been collecting it is because I'm a Joe Staten mark. I love the guy's artwork. So I've been collecting them, but I don't think I've ever read any of them, despite that I've now collected the whole series. So I thought, all right, I'll just bring E-Man number one. But as the time got near and and time was getting short and all that sort of thing, and my like, as I say, my energy level has, has really taken a hit this week. I was just like, eh, I don't feel like reading a whole comic <laughs> and synopsizing it and all that. So I got to thinking I'd recently acquired um, a different Charlton book for a short story that was in the back of it. So that's the book I actually brought. So I'm bringing to the table for this one uh, Captain Adam. Uh, number 88. This is a Charlton title um, from October of 1967. Now, Captain Adam is the uh, you know the headlining uh, character in this. He does have a full story in the beginning of the book, but what I want to focus on is the backup feature, the short story in the back of the book, which is Nightshade, the Darling of Darkness. <laughs> um, now, the credits on this one, it says, Created and Written by David A. Kaler, K-A-L-E-R. I'm, I'm imagining it's pronounced Kaler. I have no idea who this person is. Artistically conceived by Jim Aparo. And if you go to the story credits for Jim Aparo on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this is credited as only Aparo's second published story. So very, very early in his career. And... I'm going to be completely honest. I couldn't really make a whole hell of a lot out of this story, uh, story-wise. So, story starts out with this dude named... I, I'm sorry I do not have a pre-written synopsis, but trust me, you don't really need one on this one. There, there's not much substance to it. So, you've got this dude name of The Image. Um, he's a snappy dresser. He's in an all-orange outfit. He's got a belt in the middle of his outfit that basically looks like it's made out of, uh, like... Uh, oval mirrors and he's got a big eye on his forehead and it's funny because the eye is a lowercase eye and there's also another lowercase eye on the top of his mask he wants the image the, comics exactly it's <laughs> it is the logo of image comics like decades before image was actually a thing 
and he's called the image. So I just thought that was so funny. It's like this guy could be the mascot for <laughs> image comics, but it's so funny that he existed so long before they were actually created. So I, I thought that was really cool. So the image is emerging from a mirror. Basically, the image is kind of like Charlton's version of the Mirror Master, if you know that villain from Flash Comics over at DC. And he's walking out of this mirror, and he's dragging this blonde-haired woman with him, and she's protesting and everything, and he locks her up. And he's basically kidnapped her because he's trying to get her father to, like, not sign a, a defense bill or something like that. Well, unbeknownst to him, she is actually the superheroine, the Nightshade. And it gives part of an order. I get the feeling that we're being dumped into a story that was already in progress from a prior issue. And it's it's like continuing her origin, I guess. And something about she was trapped or came from an alternate dimension with these weird bat people looking things and stuff. And I don't know if she was born with the power to control shadows or she gained it from this dimension or what. But it's it's really kind of weird and wonky. But basically she has the power to if she's in darkness then she can become part of the darkness and like become a living shadow. And I think she has teleport powers. I know that becomes a thing with her later on. So anyway, she turns, she uh, smashes an overhead light with one of her shoes, uh, putting the room into darkness, you know, the prison cell that she's in into darkness. And then she changes into the nightshade and basically comes to the rescue of her father. That's being menaced by, uh, by the image they fight and the image gets the upper hand manages to knock her aside and then he sets a bomb an explosive device that is going to go off in the room basically killing everybody as he ducks back into the mirror to teleport himself away she picks up the bomb tosses it into the mirror after him and we see this huge explosion. And then, of course, the story ends with all this speculation of, well, you know, did the bomb explosion take the image with it? They don't really know. And all's well that ends well. So it's a very simple, um, very basic and kind of confusing story because, again, I feel like you you were meant to read other chapters of this. But it's just funny because it doesn't say anything like that. It, it, there's no reference to prior stories there's nothing saying continued from last issue or you know anything like that so it, it has just kind of an odd feel in that way but the reason i even own this comic is for jim apparel i am intent on owning uh all of jim apparel's uh published comics work um he's just he's always been one of my favorite artists uh, I'm really enamored of the guy's art, and I'm really taken with the fact that as early as this is in his career, I mean, again, po quite possibly only the second thing uh, that he had published, I'm really amazed by how good it looks. Yes, it's primitive. Yes, it's really early, um, but already you can see Jim Aparo's distinctive style, um, and some of the characters remind me of character models that he would refine and use later. So in particular, Nightshade's father looks a lot like 
Apero's early Commissioner Gordon because he's a, he's a little bit chunkier as his Commissioner Gordon was at first before he kind of pared him down to the more familiar Jim Gordon that we would know later in Apero's career. And then there's a, I don't know what this guy's supposed to be, a butler, I guess, who is very Alfred Pennyworth-like. He, he doesn't look exactly like him, but you can see the basic idea of him here uh, in that artwork. And, you know, just some of the other things, the the weird monsters, there's uh, one of the monsters in the alien dimension looks very much like Man-Bat from mm-hmm. Batman. Um, there's a weird, like, werewolf-looking thing that's a little wonky for, for Jim Apero, but it's it's still pretty good. And, you know, just the basic layouts and all, you can really see the seeds of greatness that, uh, you know, would become the Jim Apero that we all became familiar with and, and you know, became the, the comics legend that he was. So for that aspect of it, I'm really glad I picked this up. Um, these issues are, strangely, they are not cheap, and I'm not sure why. Um, Apero did... I don't have it before me, but I, I want to say something like three issues, I think, of backup features for this title with this character. And I've been trying to collect them, and they're they're always stupid expensive. This one here, I just happened to luck into the right time, the right place. Somebody slapped it up on eBay for like a song. Like I'm, I'm thinking like three bucks or something, and I snapped it up. So I got it really cheap. And... Uh, and I'm glad I did because as much as I enjoy it, you know, I, I will probably never read the, uh, you know, the main feature in here with with Captain Adam. I like the character and all, but I just I really don't care for this um, this R. I'm not gonna say who it is because I'm then I'm inviting everybody to go. <gasps> you can't speak ill of him, but yeah, I've never really been a fan of uh, of the artist on the primary feature here. So, but I'm curious to see what uh, what you thought about this, Dave. <laughs> Well, to be honest, I read I read the Captain Adam story. <laughs> How was it? Was it any good? I, I had some copious notes on it. <laughs> the long and the short of it was, it's a terrible story that serves no purpose. Okay. I kind of figured. I kind of figured. Um, I mean, there were a few amusing features that... I didn't think was supposed to be uh, amusing. <laughs> to be blunt, to throw I, one out of page three of the book, if you just happen to look at the artwork, there's a guy who looks like Disney without a mustache holding up a rocket, discussing vibratory effects. <laughs> oh, you're right. Oh, Doesn't it look funny. like Disney without the mustache? I can see that, yeah. <laughs> but it's a terrible story, and you made the right call to cover the second one. <laughs> the odd, I think, is great on the second one. Yeah, you I know, really do, too. She reminds me a little bit of... Um, um, I'm forgetting what the alter ego is, but you know, I think it's Rose and Thorn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Rose. Is it Rose? Yeah, Rose. Yeah, Rose. I can't remember her last name, but yeah, Rose. Yeah, that's her name. Yeah, I can see that. The senator, if you took his mustache off and put it on the butler, it is Alfred, 100%. Yeah, yeah. 
the senator reminds me, which, you know, would probably be about right time wise of Governor Rockefeller. Yes. Yeah, I can. Right. See, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can easily see that. Yeah. Well, who is that? Nelson? Nelson? Yeah, Rockefeller? Nelson yeah. Rockefeller. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that now that you say it. Yeah, he, uh, he really reminded because not long ago I finished collecting all of the apparel issues of Brave and the Bold. And then I sat down and, and read them, you know, right in order, which I had always wanted to do. I'd never done that before. And that's some of his early, you know, earliest stuff as well, especially, you know, over at D.C. and, and working with Batman. And this senator so reminded me of Aparo's early Jim Gordon. I mean, he just really looks like the guy, you know, to a point where I, it almost looks like he just, you know, moved this uh, this character model straight over and just used him. And, you know, later he would slim him down and age him up a bit. But, yeah, this definitely looks like early Aparo uh, Jim Gordon. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's an effective look. Do you know what I mean? The figure in authority. Oh, yeah. It's it's completely effective. So what, why mess with success? Yep, absolutely. The, the story, on the other hand, is a little out there. Just a it bit. Is. I, I wonder if the all the mushrooms in the background is sub, subliminally <laughs> trying to tell us where the <laughs> idea came from. Hey, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Um. I can't help but wonder if, you know, if you had the complete picture here, like if you'd been reading this feature, um, because I, I'm I'm almost positive that there's more to the character than just the apparel illustrated stories. And one of the reasons I think that is I, I looked up the um, who's who article on this character to see when her first appearance was. And it's in issue 82 of this title. And I, I'm almost positive that's not a Jim Aparo illustrated um, story. So she, it sounds like she had been a, a feature in this for a while. So I'm wondering if, if you had been reading the feature regularly, would this story make more sense? Because it feels like it's part of a, of a bigger ongoing story. But if it is, again, I'm I'm confused by the fact that there's no reference to that fact. But again, this isn't Marvel or DC. This is Charlton, and Charlton was often wacky in this regard. Um, you know, they they didn't follow a lot of the same tropes as the big two, and I I can't help but wonder if that was wasn't a big contributor to their eventual downfall. Um. When you know, did they last? In, they lasted until what? The the 80s, right? Something like that. Yeah. You know, there's a um, there's a documentary. I remember seeing a trailer for it, and I wonder. I'm trying to remember. I if I remember right, the trailer I saw was one of those like, I think it was like a Kickstarter type of thing. Like, this is the movie we want to make. Help us make it or something. I, I could be dead wrong about that. But I remember thinking, man, I really want to see that. But uh, it wasn't out. And it was, like, maybe never even got made. I'm not sure. You know what I'm talking about? No. I'm so not I, I, I need to look that yeah, I need to look that up and see if that movie ever got made. But, yeah, it was going to be a whole documentary <clears throat> about 
um, you know, basically the rise and fall of, of Charlton. Um, it's one of the reasons, you know, not to, not to bury the lead, but it's one of the reasons I, I was really pleasantly surprised with your book because I did like it so much. And a lot of that reason was not only for the great art that was in it, but I thought the story was really good. And, and you know, for, for a change with a Charlton story, it made sense from you know beginning to end, and it was actually really good. It was coherent and, and all of that. And in my experience with Charlton, that's seldom the case. A lot of the stories with Charlton were they were either really weird or they had a kind of just jointed feel like you'd missed part of the story. And so it didn't all make sense. Or sometimes they were just dumb. You know, they were like so dumbed down for the kitties that they were kind of stupid. And so I haven't, despite having a lot of Charlton comics and developing a, a fondness for them fairly recently to where if I, if I chance across them cheap, I'll pick them up. Despite all that, there's not a lot of them I hold in very high regard because the stories typically kind of sucked. So that's why I thought your, your book was, uh, you know, was a breath of fresh air because I, I really dug the story. I thought it was actually intelligent, uh, you know, compared to other Charlton's I had read like this one. <laughs> well, you know what they say in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king. Well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I, f- I find odd? <clears throat> I s- jumped over to Mike's Amazing World, and he has the uh-huh. Charlton section. This this title isn't listed, and I find I that odd. It. Yeah. If you go to the Charlton Group section, alphabetical order, Captain Gallant, Captain Willie Schultz, no Captain Adam. That's weird, because I know <clears throat> when I looked it up, Earlier, I had, for some reason, I've closed my tabs. I don't know why. But when I had looked it up earlier, I know it comes up. And, well, what I did was I did a, um, I did a creator search. So I put in Apero as the creator just to look at his um, history. I think I see why, because it's listed on the strange suspense stories, Captain Adam. Ah, uh, yeah, it it started as that, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I think it started as Strange Suspense or Space Adventures or something like that. And yeah, and that's the other thing with Charlton is their publishing history was really weird like that, too. A lot of times their numbers would jump or their titles would you know, take odd changes and stuff. Yeah, so it, it's yeah, it's it's a weird so so I was just looking at this, and if you look at the issue prior, 87, it has images, idle, I-D-Y-L. Right. So I'm guessing that would be the story that would lead into this. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my guess as well. That's got to be the first part, because issue 86, it's a Blue Beetle backup. Oh, you're right, yeah. It's weird because what's her name is on uh, uh, Nightshade is on the cover, so is she not? Oh, they're together in that story in, in number eighty six. Oh, that's Adam her in the back. Yeah. yeah, they're together in the same story. So, huh? I may I may actually have a couple of these um, non you know the ones that 
they're Captain Adam, but they're they're not by a pair. I know I don't have eighty two though. She's actually on the cover in eighty two mm-hmm. for her first appearance, so that's kind of cool. And so she jumps from eighty two to says to eighty five. I think that's the other issue. Yeah, that was the other issue where she's. Oh, I do have this one. I think I have it as one of those modern comics reprints. But it's right. the one where they're fighting Punch and Julie. I'm, I'm almost positive I have that. And this is an early Blue Beetle uh, appearance as well, if I'm not mistaken. Tom did that a lot, right? Just republishing stuff they published previously? Yep. Yeah, because uh, John Burns' um, Doomsday Plus One, I think it ran something like 12 issues. Half of the... You know, the latter half was just reprints of like the first six or something to that effect. Yeah. And it took me forever to figure that out as a kid because I was trying to collect the whole series. They're still worth collecting because most of the reprint issues have new covers, but they're basically the first, I think it was six issues just repeated. And I think they did that with a couple of other titles too, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, a lot of reprints and then, um, you know, just some kind of odd reprints where they had the uh, modern comics was the like the brand. You know, so it's like those old DCs they would reprint with um, Whitman replaced yes. DC logo or the DC bullet. Charlton did the same thing where they would have modern comics replacing you know the Charlton comics logo and on. Whether they were the same company or not, I really don't know, but. For the longest time, those modern ones, the reprints were pretty much worthless. But now, you know, that they've got you know, several decades age on them and all, I think those have started to kind of price up a bit, too, you know, on certain ones anyway. Everything is becoming crazy priced. Yeah, it is. It's nuts. I recently sold a Peacemaker number one um, Charlton that I, I'm positive I got that sucker out of the cheap bins, you know, 50 cents, maybe even less than 50 cents. And sold that sucker for, oh, I forget. It was at least a hundred bucks, and it wasn't even that in that great a shape. But yeah, because of the TV shows and the movies and all this, this stuff is just boom. It's it's blowing up. It's crazy. And I'm constantly seeing because there's an app that I recently subscribed to the um, Key Collector app where every day I'm getting a notice about some new book that just exploded. And so many of them, I've just got to laugh. It's like, really? That book? And a lot of them are ones that I I know damn well that I pulled out of some cheap bin somewhere that have just been, you know, in my opinion, for for decades, they've been, you know, quote-unquote junk books. And now all of a sudden, boom, you know, they're going for crazy money. So, you you got to love it. You know I have that affinity for war-related war, war comics. And uh, right. I had bought back in the 80s, Marvel put out a title called The Nom. Did you, did you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, I had, yeah. I bought issue one off the, the spinner rack in the candy store. You know, at the time where we thought all these issue number ones, you know, we were going to buy houses and put our kids through college. <laughs> through college, Freudian slip. So, but I only had issue one. So recently I started to pick up, you know, in my monthly buy, I would get, you know, maybe this issue two, issue three, and they were selling for two, three dollars tops. All of a sudden I'm I'm looking at my want list and it's like eight dollars for issue five. You know, it's like 
raised it in the last few months three times the price. Huh. I did not and know I don't that, see why. I, yeah, I don't I couldn't tell you because uh I, I'd have to go check. It's been a while since I looked, but uh one of the local comic shops here that I haunt regularly for you know for cheap back issues, he had a ton of nom issues in the in the dollar bin. So now I gotta go look. Because that is a title that I've long considered starting to pick up the issues and try to fill it all in because I read um I don't know, at least like the first year on that title as it was coming out. And it was really good. It, I just I didn't stick with it just because it didn't tie into anything, you know, universe wise, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, so I no, just didn't I stick with it. But I mean, it was always a solid read and, you know, a good book. And, um, you know, my understanding is, you know, in hindsight, that was, you know, it's considered one of the better books of the 80s. So, yeah, I've long considered picking up more issues of it. I know some of the later issues, you know, late in the series as the the print run started to dwindle, some of those are kind of pricey. But yeah, I didn't I think, know that the old ones were starting to go up too. Yeah, the old ones were dirt cheap. Now they're starting to go up. The the later ones, forget it. They were already up high to begin with. Right. <clears throat> but all that stuff huh. is going. The Sergeant Rock from the eighties is is expensive too. Yeah, I've always found DC stuff, um, the war books are, you know, from that, you know, from like, as you say, from the 80s are expensive. I think the print runs just had to be really, really low because there's a couple issues of um, GI combat that were pre-crisis monitor appearances. And I'm building a secondary um, collection of all the, you know, all the crisis related books. And as I'm seeking out those issues again um, of GI combat, I, I mean, I, they're stupid expensive. And I don't, I mean, I really don't know why other than, um, you know, it's got to be print run. Because, I mean, other than the, the monitor th- appearances in them, I mean, there's really nothing special about them. You know, they're, they're not, think, you know, there's no key thing, you know, or anything like that. So I don't know. I think it's age and, and rarity. Yeah, I don't think they sold all that well to begin with. I'm curious, what do you know off the cuff what the monitor crossover number is? Uh, no. give me a second, I can tell you. It's not one of the yeah, ones that combat. they. Okay, so this is this is a famous one um, as far as an error. So in the unofficial Crisis on Infinite Earths index, there was uh, a full page in there. I think it's right at the beginning of the book that give, gave you a list of all of the pre-crisis monitor appearances. But there was an error. And because it was in the, you know, quote unquote, official index, it's been repeated in, you know, ad infinitum. It's all over the internet, but it's wrong. So what they listed in there is GI Combat 275 and 276, but what it really should be is 274 and 275. 276 does not have a pre-crisis monitor appearance in it, and if I'm not mistaken, I think 275 is the first full reveal of the monitor pre-crisis. Because if you remember, all of the um, 
you know, quote unquote appearances of the monitor pre-crisis, it was always like the back of his head or a mm-hmm. hand or, or a disembodied voice or <laughs> a shadowed face or something like that. But there's one story just before crisis number one where he stands fully revealed, um, drawn by, I want to say it was Joe Kubert, but I could, I could be wrong about that. But he stands revealed to the ghost of Jeb Stewart. Oh, and it's just so bizarre, you know, just so weird. But So I can kind of see why that may be one of the reasons that one's more expensive. But still, I find generally when you look those issues up, people don't even seem to realize that they are pre-crisis monitor appearances. And I don't I don't see where any other pre-crisis monitors uh, appearances really seem to drive values on any other book that contains one. So again, I'm, I'm left with thinking it's just got to be because the, the print runs were just, you know, really low. And as you say, those books were, you know, they were kind of waning and they weren't that popular at the time they were, they were coming out. So those are the kind of things that become expensive today because there's just not that many copies of type of thing. So like I'm looking at, which I'm not going to advertise the comic shop online. I buy most of my stuff from, they have right. like nothing. They have like nothing from that run. Huh. They have some, but you know, it's like you get to the, around that area 271, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Yep. And then when it kicks in at 277, <clears throat> it ranges from 5 to $10. So I do wonder if somebody out there is buying those issues up, knowing what they contain and just, you know, for whatever reason, it's it still hasn't caught, you know, like key collectors attention or something that, hey, these are these are key issues that people are scarfing up type of thing. I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to to try to find out. But, you know, there's there's other but, you know, like the very first one, uh, the f- first monitor. um you know, the pre-crisis monitor appearance, um, it is a key, yet that, that's not listed as one of the key reasons that it is a key. So, I don't know. It's it's really weird that way. Uh, makes you wish you could go back and buy all that stuff, doesn't oh, it? Tell me about it. I ever get my hands on a time machine, I tell you what, Adolf Hitler is perfectly safe for me, dude. It's going to be scarfing up old comics and like going to the world's fair you know <laughs> i'm not gonna worry about killing hitler <laughs> <clears throat> too funny too funny well um it's really all i've got on, on the one i brought and I, I know it's not much on this but it, it's not much of a story either you know it's it's just as you know short little thing um i did i also thought it was kind of interesting just because you know, she's far from one of my favorite characters or anything, but I, I am passingly familiar with Nightshade because I remembered that she was, uh, you know, part of Suicide Squad at one part, you know, at one point, even though I didn't really follow that book for very long. I think I've read like the first year of it or whatever. Um, but then she was also part of uh, Shadow Pact, which was, was actually a book I liked quite a lot. It was another one of those like team of freaks kind of books. And I remember it was characters like blue devil and the enchantress and uh detective chimp 
So it was just a really weird team of like supernatural and just bizarre characters. And I do remember that she was a part of that as well. So, you know, a, a passing familiarity with the characters. So this was kind of neat to see, you know, sort of her origins because she was one of the characters that made the cut when DC acquired much of uh, Charlton's library, you know, when they folded and the characters got kind of folded into the DC universe um, after the crisis and all that, you know, she was one of the ones that made it. And I kind of, I like her original look too. She, she has a neat look here. It's, you know, it's different. It's a little weird, but, uh, but it's kind of cool too. I, I like the look that she's got. And her costume would change a lot over the years once she made her way to DC. So, but yeah, you know, it's just as kind of a, a historical note you know in a historical oddity for jim apero it's that's how it was you know that's how it gained my attention and that's you know that's how i i uh you know can appreciate it as a story eh, it's it was pretty run-of-the-mill charlton goofiness for that aspect you picked this for the art let's be honest (laughs) yeah oh absolutely yep (laughs) i picked it to be a, a art completist for uh for apero absolutely well, let's <clears throat> pardon me. Let's uh, because it gets under my skin, and I, you know, in one of the first l- emails I sent, I think it, it must have been you and Mike Bailey on Tales of the Justice Society. Uh huh. If you go to page thirty-four, take a look at the ad. One hundred piece toy soldiers. <laughs> Yep. Remember, I got that crap. Still irritates me till this day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just had to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, this has a number of the classic ads because the next page is the one with all the fishing stuff. I remember always seeing this ad in, in comics from this era. Just like all the different lures and the fishing poles and all. I know I've seen that ad a lot too. The one on the back cover, not so much. There's a nice house ad in here I really like, too. It's this, the one that says, Action Heroes, we got them. And it shows, uh, what was this dude's name? Peter Cannon, I think was his name. The Thunderbolt, Peacemaker, the Blue Beetle, Judo Master, Captain Adam. All these guys made it over to a DC eventually, except uh, I'm not sure. Did th- yeah, Thunderbolt did for a time. But then I, I know something must be weird with his rights or something, because he ended up becoming a character over at... Um, dynamite for a time too so i'm not sure what the whole deal is with that thunderbolt character but i know he was part of one of their crossovers that they did with all their licensed characters a few years ago that i read and it it actually wasn't too bad he had a he had a a little um i can't remember if it was a mini series or, or a regular ongoing that didn't last very many issues but he had a series or two uh with dynamite that were actually pretty good they did some they did good work over there with kind of reimagining some of the the characters that they licensed and that thunderbolt one was was not bad for a character i could give two shits about it wasn't bad it, they they made him interesting i had uh, i bought a lot of their stuff when they had the Battlestar galactica license yeah i, I enjoyed How was that? that was it good yeah, yeah. i i enjoyed I that. Dynamite. I, yeah I like that company a lot. You don't hear a hell of a lot about them. 
and uh, you know, we could probably stand to cover more of their stuff on this show, but I, I've read a lot of their library and uh, almost invariably really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I, I wish they got more attention. They were they were putting out some quality stuff. I haven't really kept with them much these days, so I don't know what they're what they're really doing. But uh, yeah, for a time, I I was reading like everything they were putting out because they were doing like Red Sonia and john carter and tarzan and the lone ranger and the green hornet and the lone ranger really. that i bought yeah. a lot of i enjoyed that yeah yeah they're alone especially that first series because it, it started out as pretty much a straight-up adaptation of like the the you know the origin story of the lone mm-hmm. ranger and uh yeah i thought that was excellent but yeah i, I really enjoyed some stuff they did a um uh, miniseries that was a crossover with uh, the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet that was damn good. I really liked that. Because uh, at first I was like, well, how can that work? They're separated by, you know, decades. They're, re- they're related. Yeah, yeah, yep. And well, that's did, how you they ever, did you ever listen to any of those old radio programs? I tried, but yeah, they're just, I, I couldn't. I couldn't get into it. I I've tried both with like Lone Ranger and uh, like Superman, you know, the early Superman ones. And I don't know. They're just, they're of another era, you know, and I could, I just couldn't really get into it, but I, I mean, it, it, it went back as far as then that they tied in, that they were related. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that was kind of the, the hook with that um, mini series was that, you know, they were related and all that. And it, um it was kind of like the the passing of the torch kind of thing because you know the lone ranger by that point you know he's you know well past his prime type of thing and and kind of passing down the mantle of of heroism or whatever to his what was he was like his great nephew i think something like that yeah i think it was great great nephew yeah yeah it was it was good stuff yeah, they did a bunch of uh, really good licensed stuff like that that I enjoyed quite a bit. You know, I really wish they would just tell the old story over and not try and make <laughs> it better. Right. Well, speaking so, of license, do we wanna do we wanna touch on your book? Sure, why not? <laughs> There's our segue. <laughs> sure, why not? <clears throat> Hang on one second here. Okay. My book now is entitled Emergency, Issue 1. People of our vintage know what this is. The younger folks may not. Cover dated June 1976 with an on-sale date of March 11th of 76. It was five. The writer, Joe Gill. Artist, did you know John Byrne drew this? I did. That's why I own it. (laughs) Editor, George R. Wildman. I really hope that's his real name. And it's (laughs) entitled Hot Cargo. Ripped from the hit television program Emergency, paramedics Roy DeSoto and John Gage speed to a warehouse fire in Squad 51. As Los Angeles County firefighters battle the inferno at Rampart Hospital, Dr. Kelly Brackett and nurse Dixie McCall treat a hostile patient named David. 
with strange radiation burns on his wrists and forearms. The warehouse fire is revealed to have been arson. The manifest documentation has been destroyed, and the fire department doesn't know what they are facing. Unable to reach the manager by phone, the police are sent to retrieve him. One Adam Four speeds through the streets en route to the manager's home. Clearly, Reed and Malloy and One Adam Twelve were unavailable as they had their own title. They retrieve him from his vacation home and discover the warehouse is loaded with potentially explosive materials, including radium chloride. Once the fire is extinguished, it's discovered that the radium chloride is missing. Suddenly, Gage apparently joins the police department and begins investigating the missing radioactive material. He quickly realizes it's Davin who flees from the hospital. Gage literally joins the police on their search for the missing material, and at one point actually tells Davin's landlord he has a search warrant. Nothing stops Gage, even getting mugged. There's even a panel on page 18 where he's actually behind the wheel of a police car. Talk about crossing the streams. Ultimately, we get a shootout, the bad guys are apprehended, the radium chloride is recovered, and we get a lesson. Davin will be taking a dirt nap because of greed. Oh, and his partner Roy shows up on one panel to have a coke. That's my synopsis. An absolutely <laughs> great book. You know, I, I throw a little humor into these things, but I love this stuff. This was my favorite program when I was a kid. <laughs> I only have vague memories. I mean, I, I remember the, the two main actors. I could not have told you their character names or their actors' names. But if I ever see them in anything on TV, like a few years ago, there was the uh, Stephen King's Rose Red was mm -hmm. a miniseries on TV. And I remember that the old guy in the show had been one of the two guys on Emergency. So, you know, I, I definitely remembered the show, but I don't remember like a single like episode plot or anything like that. I definitely didn't remember their names or what. So it was like a, you know, childhood, like, you know, vague memory type of thing. But this was this was really fun. And I really, really like the art in this. I mean, from from cover to cover. Because the cover on this is by Joe Staten, who, again, I'm a huge Staten mark. I really like Joe Staten, and I like this painted cover on here. And then, I mean, this is honestly, you know, I mean, other than, like, his his run on Superman, this is the burn I prefer, is the early burn. Because he just, I mean, look at the A-game he's bringing to this book. I mean, it's just beautiful art. It's so well rendered and so detailed. I mean, all the backgrounds are, you know, full of things to look at and detail, rubble and action. And, you know, it, it has a real, you know, solid world feel to it. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah, I was very impressed with this. Yeah, work and was good put into this. this too. I'm yeah. sorry? I said work was clearly put into this. This wasn't a sh slip oh, yeah. shot, throw it together. I mean, yeah, they really look like the two guys on the program. 
Yep. Yeah, and he's doing a lot of really interesting things with the art. And I mean, a lot of the story, honestly, there's, there's, I mean, there are action sequences, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of it that is pretty mundane. You know, it's characters standing, talking to each other. It's characters, you know, uh, you know, driving a car or, you know, walking into a room or what have you. So there's, you know, it's not exactly action packed, although there is definitely action in it. And he manages to make it, flow and he keeps everything interesting so even when it's just mundane stuff like characters talking to each other the panel is still dynamic and really fun to to look at and and done in a very good way and he's doing a lot of uh you know like neil adams isms with you know tilted angles and you know irregular panels and that sort of thing so i mean it, it has a really dynamic look to it I really like the page. This is page. It's the next to last page. I can't quite make out the number 32, I think, where the cops show up. Mm-hmm. And he tells you he's yelling at the guy. He says, drop it. And just the use of shading and the blacks and everything and the and the tilted angles. I mean, that's that's beautiful. I mean, it yeah. really looks really, really nice as he's shooting. You know, he shoots the guy and disarms him and. Then he shoots him again and kills him, it looks like. But, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, really well rendered. This was the 70s. It was all right back then. Yeah. That's no, great. Now, I wish I remembered more about the show because I was trying to remember, <laughs> was Gage like this? I mean, was he basically like a cop that thinks no. he's a policeman? No. Okay. This has not, <laughs> this never happened in the TV show. Okay. I mean, maybe it happened in one issue, but it wasn't a regular thing. It was right. strictly, they were paramedics assigned to the squad, and they would get calls and go out there for medical issues, and usually once or twice in episode, there was a big fire, and the truck would roll out too, you know, the engine company. Right. Do you know, do you remember a show in the early 2000s, Third Watch? I remember it. I don't think I ever watched it, but I know the show you're talking about. Yeah. Police, fire, doctors in the hospital. That's what emergency was. That was the original version. That's the way I remembered the show was that it was basically two buddy paramedics. That's the way I remembered it. But then as I started reading this, I'm like, okay, is this guy a paramedic who's also a fireman. And then as the story goes on, I'm like, okay, is this guy a paramedic who's also a fireman who also assists the police? What the hell is this guy? Because he, he seems to flow easily between all three roles. Cause it start as the issue starts, he's clearly dry. You know, he's part of this ambulance crew. So he's a paramedic, but then a little bit later, he's actually wearing um, a fireman's hat and, and coat and hanging out with the fire guys as they're trying to solve this mystery of what's in the warehouse or whatever. And then later on, he's riding around with the cop trying to hunt down, you know, the bad guy and solve the mystery. And I'm like, okay, so what, what is this guy? You know? this, and so it was a this, little bit confusing in that aspect. This was actually when they came out with this program, it was pretty much right after they just started with paramedics. What it used right. to be was, you know, 
you had an accident or something, an ambulance came and took you to the hospital. Right. They started the Los Angeles Fire Department, started a paramedic program based on, you know, uh, medics in Vietnam that they figured they could save more lives if you could treat people in the field. And it was a big battle in the legislature because the doctors were against this, that, you know, they didn't want people practicing medicine. Finally, they passed this bill. But the, the catch was they would arrive in that red Ram fire vehicle. It's a, you know, it's like a pickup truck on steroids. They would have to get on the phone to the hospital and they would talk to one of the doctors and the doctor would authorize them, you know, start an IV, do X, Y and Z. That was the connection to that. You know, it wasn't like today where they just arrived on the scene the ambulance crew were paramedics. That's not how it was. That's why this was so land, you know, a landmark thing at the time. Fascinating program, all based on true stuff. Jack Webb was behind this program. Right. So I'm looking here. I knew I had at least one more issue of this series. It only ran four issues. I I was trying to remember... I have issues one and two, and I knew I bought issue one because of Burn, but I was trying to remember if Burn also worked on issue two because I also have issue two. And it looks like here, at least according to the credits on Mike's Amazing World, that he did not. It credits the same writer, Joe Gill, but the artist is Demetrio Gomez, who I'm not familiar with. But the art on issue two, uh, the cover, I mean, is... Oh, it's gorgeous. It's even better than the cover on this one. It's uh, it looks like the uh, firefighters are are trapped like in a like in a burning building or something. They're trying to, I don't know. It's the image I'm looking at. It's kind of tiny, but it's like they're being hit by a beam or trying to lift a burning beam or something like that. But yeah, it's a really nice Joe Staten cover on that one. And then the other issues are all by uh, other other people. So neither um neither Staten nor uh, Byrne on issues three and four. It only lasted four issues. I was kind of surprised to learn there was also a Charlton magazine. And I didn't really realize that Charlton did too many magazines because I knew they did like the $6 million man, but that's the only one I I could remember. But they also did um, the magazine. And there's no credits here on Mike's Amazing World, but I'd swear that issue number one cover is by Neil Adams. It looks very Adams-like. But uh, I'd be interested to see those, too, just to see what the interiors are like, because the the, um, the covers are really nice. It looks on a quick glance here like the first two covers are Neil Adams, and then the third and fourth issue covers are, um, I think it's Earl Norum. But again, there's no, I'm not seeing any credits here. But yeah, both the comic and the magazine only lasted four issues. I have all four of the comics. I would love to get my hands on the magazines. I mean, the cover, I get the magazines are black and white, I believe. But the covers are fantastic. Yeah. I'm very surprised this only lasted four issues of each. Because this was a, it was very popular. At the, it was so popular yeah. that it was in re, reruns while it was still on. 
Well, this let me. See, how how long did this show? Because I know the show ran for like six seasons, but what would this have still? Would the show have still been on when this was on the stands? I think so. Hang on, let me look. Because it ran what like seventy two to like seventy six or seven, right? I think it went later than that, maybe. Let me, because then they there's a, a last season where it's like four movies, you know. Remember like the right. movie. Right. Did this ever cross over with SWAT? Wasn't there one of those shows that crossed over no. with SWAT at some point? Maybe, but you know what this crossed over with? Adam What's 12. That? Oh, right, Adam. right. Yeah, that makes sense. But you know what the funny part about it is? I think it's on one of the very early issues Reed and Malloy are in it, you know, from Adam 12. In a later episode of Emergency, they're watching TV and they're watching Adam 12. (laughs) And they're complaining because they had to go on a call and, oh, we're not going to know what happened. Uh, This went six seasons. Let's see, when did it run through? Uh, 77. So it went from 72 to 77. Huh. And it's what? It was 30 cents. So it was contemporaneous pricing. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know a hell of a lot about Charlton. I wish I knew more about them, but I, I can only speak to my own experience. Charlton's were where I bought comics as a kid were, were really rare. They were the, you know, they were the redheaded stepchild of of the comic, you know, industry at that time. And I can remember the place that I primarily bought comics from had the occasional Charlton. They were really sparse and they were not kept with the other comics. So the the regular Marvels and the very few DCs that they sold were on the spinner rack. And then anything like you know, uh, you know, independent like Charlton was kept with like where the magazines were. So they're kind of like buried on the rack with all the other magazines and everything, like you know, Mads and Heavy Metal and that sort of thing. That's how I remember it. And then the other places that we would go, like if we went into Watertown, you know, which was like, it's laughing you know laughable to think of it as the city but that was the city to us you know that was going into the city um when we went into the city i don't remember ever seeing any charlton's at like the book there was a bookstore i could buy comics at and then there was like this little mom and pop convenience store that we might hit on the way home sometimes that would have comics and i never remember seeing anything but but marvels and dcs in there so i wonder if it was you know, if distribution was a big part of it, too, for them. You know, it could why? Have been. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, we had, look, I, I bought comic books from the Spinner Rack in the candy store. And that was in Brooklyn. So, I mean, you know, uh, we had a, f- a few charms, but not many. So, I mean, if distribution wasn't so hot here, you know, probably wasn't that good. The- Probably it was expensive to get the licensing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've heard that 
so many times from, you know, the big two when they would talk about, you know, the comics that they did that were licensed properties, how expensive the licenses were. And I mean, wasn't that the bulk of Charlton was licensed stuff? At least that's to my memory. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. Well, they had the bionic man. Right. Yeah, Didn't they, they have that? Yeah, they had the $6 million man, they had the bionic woman, they had Space 1999. Um, damn, I know there's a whole bunch of oh, emergency. I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch more of them that they did that were that were licensed. I think there's an ad in here for... Flintstones. Uh, <laughs> I hear. Uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, Flintstones, Beetle Bailey, Blondie. Remember Jetsons, Hong Kong Fooey? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Quick draw McGraw. Yeah. So I don't know if it was I don't know. I was thinking it was the bulk of their library. Maybe not the bulk, but it was a it was a solid chunk of it anyway. Yeah, definitely. And those were all recognizable characters from, you know, movies and TV or what. I I've always wondered, did their in house creations really do all that well because i you know it seemed to me like they they lived a better life and a bigger life when they went over to dc the ones that made it you know like blue beetle and captain adam and all that but i don't know again it's just it's one of those things i wish i knew more about because you know i i'm kind of fascinated by them now but as a kid, we we generally scorned the the Charlton's. I don't I don't remember ever buying one off the rack because they were, you know, they they just looked cheap, you know. And because of the the printing process they used, you know, I mean, literally using printing presses that were intended for cereal boxes, they always had a weird look to them. Even this issue, I mean, now don't get me wrong, I love the art in this, but if you look at the coloring. It's still that bizarre um, Charlton coloring where it's just off a little yeah. bit. It looks it looks like like somebody colored it with like pastel markers or something. The coloring is just bizarre. Yeah, um, there's a the ad for the six million dollar man, Oscar Goldman looks orange. Right. Completely yeah. off. Uh, I'm amazed at the number of romance comics they're selling one two three four five six seven eight books was there really that big a market for it yeah maybe they were cornering that market or trying to corner that market how'd that go (laughs) yeah i don't know but you know that's the thing though is that that's the kind of stuff that becomes pricey in the back issue market there are several issues of uh, several different companies where I'm trying to get back issues of their non-superhero stuff because it has work by artists that I like, you know, just, you know, the odd, you know, the one-off short story or something like that. You know, things like, you know, I, I couldn't tell you a romance title, but, you know, something like Young Love or whatever by DC, you know, some random issue. And it'll be stupid ass expensive because the print runs were so damn low and they're really hard to come by on the cheap. And it's frustrating because, you know, I only want it to be a completist, so I'm not going to pay, 
you know, more than like a buck or two for it, you know, and some of them are, I mean, I'm talking like ridiculously, like hundreds of dollars. And it's like, this is a romance comic. Nobody gives a shit about why is it so expensive? You know, it's, it's did they Did they sell off their superheroes prior to folding? Because I'm looking at the list of all the titles that you can subscribe to. There's no Captain Adam. None of those characters we just saw in the last book we did. There's nothing here. There's animated, there's romance, mystery, western, war, and the TV ones. I am no, I, I will profess, I am no expert when it comes to this. Um, I know those characters originated with charlton and i know that just prior to the to the crisis and i'm talking like a few months before the crisis drug all those characters into dc via i think they were earth six i want to say what's oh, that i thought it was i thought it was earth you've got to be right I can't, I, I can't, I, no, I don't trust my memory on that. I, I'm not sure. But anyway, they were an alternate Earth with, you know, Blue Beetle and all those guys. Prior to that, um, those characters were appearing in, um, oh, shit. Now I'm never going to remember the name of it. It was, it was not Charlton. It was, uh, what was it called? AmeriComics. AmeriComics was... It was AC Comics, which stood for... I'm not seeing it here, what it actually stood for. But I'm almost positive that AmeriComics had nothing... Or AC Comics had nothing to do with Charlton. So how they wound up publishing um, those characters, I, I don't I don't know. I would, I would love to know the whole story behind that. Um, I will bet you they were hemorrhaging money. And they sold them off. Oh, here it goes. Okay, so right here, there's there's a wiki on this, and it says AC. It says AC Comics had used Charlton Comics characters, particularly the Blue Beetle and Captain Adam, uh, in the comic title Sentinels of Justice. Okay, yes, this, this is ringing a bell. I had these uh, when the rights for these characters were sold to DC Comics. AC Comics created a second Sentinels of Justice team, writing the first out of continuity, composed, okay. But that still doesn't explain how those characters wound up at AC. And I'm not seeing that explained here in the in the wiki, unfortunately. So yeah, that was... Uh, huh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the whole origin there. Because it says that AC was founded in 69... But I know that all the issues that I'm familiar with are from the the early 80s. So let's see. It says in 1982, the company changed its name to America. Okay, here we go. So to America Comic, uh, America Comics rather, in 1982, before settling on AC Comics in 1984. It doesn't say when they went when they went bust. But I know they didn't last very long, and they didn't have much output as i recall so yeah i don't it's a it's a weird history with these characters but as i recall the sentinels of justice 
was essentially, if if memory serves, it was all the characters that were or had originated at Charlton that wound up at DC. So you had, you know, Blue Beetle, um, the Question, all those guys. And there, you know, there were a bunch of. Uh, I'm looking, Captain Adam. They stopped publishing in '67. The other, what was one of the other titles we were looking at? Uh, uh there was Blue Beetle. Um, let's just see. Captain Adam. I'm trying to remember the ones that actually had a book of their own, and the, there not a lot of them actually did, as I recall. They a lot of times they were like backup features. Right. But there was definitely definitely though. Let me think. There were the big, like the big three. Were Blue Beetle, Captain Adam, 68. and the Question, and I don't remember if the Question actually had his own title. I I don't think he did. Yeah, and then Blue Peacemaker Beetle did. Blue Beetle stopped in '68. I bet you that, they were going. That's what broke. I was thinking. Is you know to go back to your question, what what I think, you know, how I remembered this was that. Those characters had kind of waned, and they weren't publishing them by the point where they were publishing like Emergency, and then they had like a resurgence just before they ended up going over to DC. But it, it sounds to me like that resurgence was at a different, uh, basically at AC Comics, at a, a completely different company. Yeah, I I'm think that's what happened. If, yeah. I know that they also, some of those characters also appeared in the Charlton Bullseye, which was kind of like a, like a showcase type of, type of book, but I don't remember what years those were. I, I had some yeah. of those too. So I don't know. It's it a seems, whole weird history with them. It seems nothing has a long run. The $6 million man at Brantford looks like nine issues. Space 1999, eight issues. I'm guessing they couldn't afford it. I know they disappeared completely in the 80s because I was buying yeah. those Fighting Navy books off the uh, the spinner rack. Right. And those, uh, you know, I've gone back now and bought, you know, the, the old ones. And they literally, under the same title, were publishing the exact same material from 30 years earlier. <laughs> Change the cover, same stories. Here we go. All right, so in 19... Where the hell's the year on this? 1981. June of 1981, Charlton Bullseye... Volume two, number one, reintroduction. This is a key issue. Reintroduction of the Blue Beetle and the Question. So, yeah, that's what it sounds like happened is that they waned at some point to a point where they weren't even being published and then kind of made a resurgence in the 80s. Right, just for in like time 10 for, Yeah, just in time for Charlton to go bust. And... Uh, and eventually they wound up at DC. That does make sense because now, as I recall, I remember having some issues of 
space i think it was called space adventures as a kid that i got really excited about when i found them because i thought they were worth a lot of money it turned out that they were reprints of captain adam stories from like 20 years earlier so that that makes sense his i think his resurgence were all reprints i don't think he actually did make i don't think they did original stories with him i could be wrong about that so you know it was this weird combination of Stories like Charlton Bullseye that brought the characters back and then also bringing the characters back, but then just strictly in reprints, too. So, yeah, Charlton was a weird. That was a weird entity. But I'll tell you, the cool thing about them is not only did we get some really cool characters that wound up at D.C., but a lot of talent came out of um, came out of Charlton. And what's funny is that a lot of times those the talents weren't really being utilized to where i mean of course they they weren't big names then so it's easy to look back and go well, gee why weren't they putting burn on some big you know project or but he wasn't a superstar yet but a lot of superstars or, or you know at least uh writers and artists that became big later did come from charlton so you had like bob mcleod John Byrne, Joe Staten, Jim Aparo, um, Dick Giordano. Wow. Uh, I mean, some some big guys came out of there. Well, uh, they I know there's a whole bunch more I'm blanking on, but yeah. They were willing to take the risk on new new talent, probably. Right. Well, then also, you know, when when Charlton folded, then those guys, you know, they were already in comics and they you know they needed a new home essentially. I think that's how uh, Giordano wound up over at DC um, was basically, you know, when, when Charlton folded uh, that's, you know, that's where he went and he brought some of those guys with him. As I recall, it's so funny about that. That's tickling a memory to think of Dick Giordano working for another company, you know, that he was such a fixture in DC. Oh yeah. I'm trying to remember what he did at. Uh, let me see if there's anything on his wiki. I'm trying to remember what he did though at um, at uh, Charlton because I know he maintained a lifelong affinity for those characters because he was the driving force behind. Do you remember Law? It was like a I think it was a six issue mini that DC did. This would have been late 80s, early to mid 90s, something like that. And it was reuniting all of the Charlton characters now that they were DC characters and putting them all in the same story. And it stood for law was an acronym that stood for, I don't know, something. I can't remember what. I, I I have had it. I had it for a long time and I finally got around to reading it. At one point, and it wasn't bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. It was you could tell it was a labor of love, where where this guy was, you know, bringing back together, you know, some characters that he had he had a really strong affinity for. Uh, let's see. Uh, in the mid 1960s, a Charlton veteran, Giordano rose to executive editor. Uh, let's see. 
As an editor, he made his first mark in the industry overseeing Charlton's revamping of its few existing superheroes and having his artists and writers create new such characters for what he called the company's action hero line. Okay, that makes sense. That's the ad that we were just, were just looking at. Many of these artists, including new talent Giordano, brought on board, including Jim Aparo, Denny O'Neill, wow. Steve Skeets. Um, and then DC Vice President Erwin Donenfeld hired Giordano as an editor in April 1968 at the suggestion of Steve Ditko. With Giordano bringing over some of, uh, to DC some of his or some of the creators he had nurtured at Charlton. Okay, so I was right. That is the way I remembered the story. And uh, and yeah, and once he was over at DC, you know, he became a legend over there. So yeah, I mean, he was he was very instrumental in you know nurturing these guys, but then also eventually bringing them over to DC as well. And I mean, you you look at you know, you take any one of these guys, uh, you know, they became huge when they were working, especially Jim Aparo. I mean, that, you know, that's always one I'll focus on. I mean, coming over to D.C., I mean, that's where all of his legendary stuff is, you know. But it's fun, again, you know, to look back on this this early work of these guys. Um, you know, John Byrne. I'm surprised Giordano didn't try to bring Byrne over to uh, to D.C. What a different history that would have been. Oh, boy. If he had bypassed Marvel and come to DC first, who knows what he might have wound up on. That could have been that could have been cool. That could have been really interesting. Although I I would lament the loss of like Fantastic Four. His his run on Fantastic Four is still to me. That is still top notch stuff. I still have a sentimental uh, feeling for the late 70s, early uh... 80s pre-crisis Superman, which yep. I think we've discussed recently. <laughs> yep. But imagine him coming over, you know, years, like maybe like a full decade before he actually came in, in you know, in real life, you know, to Man of Steel. Imagine him coming into Superman in like 76, 77. How amazing could that have been, you know? You know, the thing is, it might have been, it would have been too early to do that. The public may not have been ready for that. Because then you would have been, because it would have been pre-Superman the movie. And I think that movie changed everyone's perspective. That Yeah, that is very true. I can see that. Yeah, I can easily see that. Imagine the whole sterile Krypton thing before you saw it on the big screen. I mean, well, what? I don't necessarily. I don't. I don't necessarily mean like having having gotten Man of Steel in right, 1976 right. as opposed to 1986, but just burn you know burn himself with his visual aesthetic and everything yeah. coming to Superman you know in that. Uh, late silver age, you know, pre-crisis era and everything and, and bringing, you know, just the magic of his art. Yeah. Cause I, I can't even imagine that they would have necessarily let him write, but I could definitely see them bringing him in to be, you know, a, a hot new artist type of thing on, on Superman. But I, I wonder if, you know, if he would have had enough of a reputation at that point to be given the big guy, you know, Superman, I, I, 
I would more imagine him being brought in and wind, winding up on, you know, kind of like how Apero was brought in and became this huge Batman legend. But primarily, you know, he was on, um, you know, for Batman anyway, he was on Brave and the Bold, which was like a, a, a like a sub title for uh, for Batman. You know, it was the team up mm-hmm. book. So I could see Byrne being brought into something, you know, lesser tier than action or superman but i don't know again you never know it would have been interesting one way or the other you know it's so funny how think about all the versions of batman we've gotten since then but in my head when i think batman it's the power of batman i see yep absolutely i completely agree with you yep i'm I'm exactly the same way that to me is that's the real batman if you know what i mean (laughs) now get off my lawn Well, you know, I mean, I, I fully, you know, accept and realize that there's a lot of different versions of Batman. But to me, you know, if you if you were going to, you know, peel it back to, OK, what's what's the core? Who's the real Batman? You know, will the real Batman please stand up? It's going to be a Perro's Batman to me. And, you know, other people's mileage, you know, clearly varies. So. <laughs> on, well, on, a, on a quick side note, did you see those? uh McFarlane superpowers figures they're releasing. I have seen of them. I have yet to see them with my own eyes. I haven't. Uh, I've been so busy with work. I haven't had a chance to get to the store. But man, I want at the very least, I want to get a Superman and I want a Supermobile. Me too. I definitely get those. I haven't seen them anywhere except eBay, and I'm not paying those prices. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Now, where are they selling them? Are they like? You know, good retailers everywhere, or is it like specifically like Walmart or Target or something? They're not even saying. I've been on McFarlane's page all the time. It's like they haven't been released yet. So I don't know whether these are people who have stolen them off of trucks and places or (laughs) stolen out of the factory in China, which is entirely possible. But I I have yet to see them. But we don't get anything here in the the city. You've got to... Target, it's empty. If uh, if the toy, you know, if the toy store or the toy department still works anything like it worked when I used to manage one for Target, you know, many years ago, a lot of times if something was a hot collectible like that, that shit would never even make it to the sales floor. You know, it would wind up, you know, purchased by somebody who worked the stock crew or something and, you know, head straight to eBay. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if it's still exactly the same way. Because I know that, I mean, I haven't been into toy speculation in a long, long time. But I know anytime I ever have headed to a Walmart with the intention of, hey, you know, I just heard about some Star Wars figure that's out or something that I would like to just personally, I'm not looking to speculate at all, but just I'd like it for my own collection. I go and try to find it and it's, you know, you, you find all these peg warmers, you know, that, that nobody wants, but you can't find the hot new thing that's out. And I wonder sometimes, do they even make it to the shelf? And I seriously doubt it. So that's why it annoyed me a few years ago when, when target implemented a new policy. And I don't know if it's still the policy today, cause I really try not to shop there, but they had a policy on, uh, I remember they actually posted it like right on the sh- store shelves, basically saying, 
don't ask the associates. We won't get shit for you from the back, you know, from the back room, from the stock room. And I'm like, what a bunch of assholes, you know? I'm like, you're clearly, you don't want business if you're if you're going to tell people that because, you know, yes, you can you can try to approach it as these are for everyone and you know they're they're intended for children or whatever. But if you're actively telling people with money in hand that no, if you if you came here to buy this product, even if we have it, we're not going to go back and pull it out of the stock room for you. That's a recipe for losing customers right there at the, at the very least. And I, I thought, what an asinine policy. So Terrible again, policy. I don't know if they still do that, but I couldn't, I was shocked when they actually implemented that policy. I'm like, wow, that is, that is one stupid business model. And to think we grew up where you could go to a Toys R Us or whatever and get whatever you wanted. Yep. There was never, Oh, we don't have that. Of course we got it. Yep. Progress. How the hell did they ever fail anyway? I've I still don't understand. How does a Toys R Us, I mean the the chain, how did they fail? I bet you it was the internet. Yeah. Like, like Sears. I mean Sears was around with that catalog forever. You would have thought yep. the internet would have been the logical next step, but they didn't get on quick enough. Yeah. Yeah. Progress. I guess that's got to be, yeah, it's got to be something like that. Cause I mean, as you say, like Toys R Us, that was like toy mecca when I was a kid, you know? I mean, they were everywhere and they had everything. And to think there's, I mean, it's not even like they were replaced. It's like they went away and just nothing ever stepped in to fill the gap. And that, that is really bizarre to me, but I don't know. Everything is my age, probably. Everything. Sears used to have a fairly decent toy department, too. Yeah. Gone. Kmart. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> now get off my lawn. Yeah, exactly. We're showing our age with this one. <laughs> well, this was fun. I'm glad we did this. Absolutely. Did we want to rate this book? Oh, sure. Uh, you, would, do you want to do yours first? Or? Uh, I'm not going to bother with mine just because it was a short story. I, 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 you know, as I say, I bought it for the art. The art didn't disappoint. The story was kind of bizarre and kind of pointless. So that's all I really got from, for my particular contribution to the show. But, uh, I really, I, I really enjoyed yours. Um, I'll let you rate first on it though. It's your book. Okay. Um, the cover out of the gate. An A plus for me. I, I like the coloring. I like the, the painted aspect of it. They look like the guys on television. A plus on the cover. The interior art, I enjoyed that too. It was fun. It had backgrounds. It had details. Again, the two stars. Though Roy only gets pretty much to drink a Coke. A on the art. The story... You know, it's it, it's not as realistic as the television program, but it's aimed at a you know a kid audience. It had action, it had adventure, it had firefighting, it had police chases, it had shootouts. Can't ask for anything more. A, overall grade A for me. All right. Um, 
I really like the cover. Uh, I'm a big Joe Staten fan. Not quite as high on it as you are, but I did really enjoy it. I'm going to say, uh, I think I'll say a B plus on this, just because I, I have seen other work by, by Staten that I do like better. Uh, I think it could use a little bit of refinement, but I also wonder if some of my issues with it, again, aren't because of the limitations of the shitty uh, printing process that Charlton was employing. Um, but it is a good cover, and it's eye-catching, and I agree. I really like the character likenesses. Um, both Staten uh, on the cover and Byrne on the interior did a fantastic job with character likenesses. I mean, they really look like the people in the show. Um, interior art, I mean, this is so close to an A+. It's scary because this is just phenomenal John Byrne. It looks great. I love the panel layouts. I like the dynamism of it. Um, it looks really good, and it's really a testament to Byrne's art. And I don't know who's inking this. I'm kind of thinking it might actually be Byrne inking himself on this. Um, I think the art really shores up, again, the kind of lousy uh, printing process, but also the bizarre coloring, because the, the coloring is quite bizarre the more you look at it, yet it works really well with Burns art style here and, uh, and comes together really nicely. So it, it looks really good despite the weird colors. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to go straight up a on the art. I really, really dig it. And then the story, eh, it has its wonky moments and all, but overall I was really impressed by the intelligence, the cohesiveness of it. And I found it, um, you know, very adult. And I don't mean adult because it had sex and violence, but just adult because it dealt with more adult themes. It felt like it could actually be an adapted episode of like the television show. So it wasn't, it wasn't dumbed down. It wasn't dumb or silly or anything like that. It was a, it was a pretty cool story. I thought it was very well told and, and very well put together. So I was impressed with the, uh, with the writing on the story as well. So story wise, um, I think I'd go a straight up B. I'll say a B plus on the story. I was pretty impressed with uh, with the whole nature of it. So as an overall product, um, I'd be pretty high. I think it's uh, again. I think it's stronger than the sum of its parts. So as an overall grade on this, I think I'd go a straight uh, A minus on it. I was I was quite uh, impressed with this. As I say, I've owned this book for I mean literally decades just because it was a burn book and you know there was a, a brief point in in time where i owned i mean 99.9 percent of everything burn had ever done whether it was writing penciling inking just a cover image whatever i mean i was just a burn nut and this was one of those books i i got somewhere for like 50 cents more than likely i you know out of some cheap bin somewhere and just stuck in a bag and board and put in a box and never actually read. So it was really fun to finally sit down and read this and discover, damn, this was a really good book. So yeah, I'm glad you brought this one. I really dug it. I, I hope it, it made. Cool. I hope it made up for some of those war comics I made you read. <laughs> <laughs> it did. <laughs> No, thanks for bringing this one. I, I really, I did enjoy this a lot. It was, it was cool. And this was great. Well, 
that'll do it for this time around. Uh, next week, something else. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Scott. Thanks for being had. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.